Lord God, you give us so many opportunities to see you. Lord, you give us so many opportunities to see your care and your bounty. The sound of birdsong. The sight of wonderful, extravagant, outrageous beauty in the flowers and the simple plants that you cause to grow. Lord, you give us so much to marvel at. The stars in the heavens, the 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 vast majesty of your creation. And Lord, in our own lives, we see your hand. We see your care in the word of a friend, in the, in the loving concern of a brother or sister. Lord, we see you speaking to us and assuring us and loving us. And Lord, in this bread and wine that we'll be sharing later, Lord, we see you and we see your love for each one of us, wherever we are on our journey, wherever we are in our hearts, you are here for us. And Lord, I pray that each of us will really know that and respond to that. Bless us, Lord, we pray as we, as we share together this morning. Encourage us and challenge us, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to read from Isaiah chapter, 20, sorry, chapter 35, and then we're also going to read from James chapter 5. Um, so uh, Jeff is going to read to us from Isaiah 35 and Christine is going to read to us from James chapter 5. This is Isaiah 35 and it's entitled Joy of the Redeemed. The desert and the parched land will be glad the wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf and stopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert the burning sand will become a pool and the thirsty ground bubbling springs. 
In the hordes where the jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and sorrow will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. James chapter 5. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we considered blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, or you will be condemned. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Thanks, Christine. Thanks, Jeff. They're both quite powerful passages, aren't they? Those two passages that we read. We'll be thinking about them a bit more uh, later on. But first, we're going to sing together. I think this is a beautiful song. 
and one that just exudes quiet confidence and quiet trust. And I hope that that's something that that we can go away feeling a little bit more uh, after this morning. I rest in God alone. From him comes my salvation. My soul finds rest in him. My fortress, I'll not be shaken. Oh, trust in him, you people pour out your hearts. It's just a lovely rhythm and uh, internal rhyme there, which uh, so I just noticed and it, uh, it touched me. Sorry. Um, uh, I've lost my notes now. Um, oh no, that, that one, it's okay, I, I deliberately left that one down there so, so that it wouldn't confuse me, yes. And now you've confused me. Yeah. Shorter anyway. I remember one time I, I, I went, I uh, was about to get up and speak and, and there's a little lad sitting next to me on the front row and, uh, and he, he, he said, what are those? And pointing at my notes. And uh, I said, oh, they're my notes for my talk. He said, what? All of them. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I've only got, uh, only got two pages. The epistle of James is, is where I want to focus today. I want to, to look at, at James chapter 5. I quite like the epistle of James. It was one of those things that um, it, it was a it was it was a it was a book that that appealed to me as a as a young man. I'm no longer a young man. It still appeals to me. But it it, it wasn't always a, a, an epistle that was that had a universal uh, respect. Martin Luther described James as the epistle of straw. He thought that it was. It was wrong, basically. It shouldn't be in the Bible. It was, it, compared to Romans, which had all of, all of the, the teaching about salvation by faith, James was, yeah, it was a bit dodgy, because it, it talked about doing things in a way that Luther thought was, was wrong. So he, he fought to actually have it dropped from the, uh, from the canon. He thought that it was insufficiently sound. To, to compare with Romans. As, he, as far as he was concerned, James presented a different view, a different perspective on the importance of actions. Um, and he thought that that was wrong, rather than seeing it as a complementary view and a complementary teaching. Luther wanted to get rid of the complication, the, sorry, the contradiction he wanted to get rid of that contradiction rather than change his view to accommodate a bigger view. Now, I, I can understand that, can, can, can you? Because once you've got a view, once you've got an opinion, sometimes it's more comfortable to search out information that confirms that view rather than challenges it. Information that doesn't fit or, or views that don't fit that particular perspective are ignored or discarded in order to confirm your existing view. There's a psychological term for it, and my daughter isn't here to contradict me, so I'm going to use it. It's called confirmation bias. 
And it's, it's essentially making the mistake that the, the view that you have fits the facts available. For example, if you are finishing off drilling a well in the Gulf of Mexico and you think that you have cemented the bottom of the well in order to uh, stop the oil flowing up and you're convinced that that's a good cement job and you have all these tests that are telling you something else. You try to fit them into, into a, a, a view. You, you make up theories that say, well, okay, the reason that's happening is because although we've got a good cement job at the bottom of the well, um, something else is happening that is giving us a different answer. And that's why we had the Gulf of Mexico blowouts eight years ago that polluted the Gulf of Mexico dramatically. There was the Deepwater Horizon event. Confirmation bias is one of those things that we look out for in major accidents to try and get people to, to take a view of all the facts that are available. And it's a danger for us when we read Scripture. Scripture is there for us to learn from, for us to have a rounded understanding of God. Scripture isn't there to be fitted into our view we are here to be fitted into scripture's view. Scripture is there for us to be challenged by. As I say, information that doesn't fit that view, we can ignore or discard or explain away. I should have read Isaiah chapter 34 this morning as our reading for the day. But it was full of blood and guts and swords dripping with fat that I thought it wasn't appropriate and I didn't quite like the idea of reading it out this morning. I I chose to ignore that. I'm not saying that it's not important. I made a decision not to read it because it was a little bit challenging to me. And this chapter in James, this particularly the first few verses, I found quite challenging and quite difficult in some ways. Let's let's turn to it. James chapter five and verse one. I, I heard a story about some preacher who was speaking to a very conservative group of Christians, and he and he read this passage out, but he accredited it to a a then well-known communist firebrand and said, this is what this communist is saying. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. It's a, it's a furious passage, isn't it? And you can understand how, if it was, if it was spoken in, in, in those terms and accredited to, uh, to someone that they 
they disagreed with, their confirmation bias would say, yes, this is a terrible thing to say. But actually it's there. And it's not an Old Testament piece of writing. It sounds like an Old Testament piece of writing, but it's a New Testament piece of writing. It's there for us to listen to and to be challenged by. Who's it aimed at? Well, it's clearly aimed at rich people, but but who is rich? Am I rich? Are you rich? A, a, a definition of a rich person is someone who owns twi- earns 20% more than you do. And, you know, and, and, and they, they will always be richer. As, you know, however wealthy you get, however much you earn, you're, you're not rich because they're the rich ones. Yeah, it's the person who's got two super yachts rather than, than, than one super yacht. We can all say that we're not rich. We can all say that we're rich compared to others. So is this about other people? Is it about people who are so rich that they have stores of silver and gold, clothes and wealth that is just rotting away? That, that, that's who this is it, it, it's talking about is it about people who acquire wealth just for the sake of it and people who cheat and steal to get it well clearly it's about them clearly it's about those people who have that kind of uh, opulence and materialistic view uh, who do it but you know, is it about the, just the 1% who flaunt riches and will do anything to keep it? Well, certainly there's an application there, but is it just about them? Can we skip over the passage and say, well, that's, that's not one for us. It's not one that, that we need to worry about. Can we just allow our confirmation bias to tell us that it's about very rich people? Or is there a learning that we can apply to ourselves? Because it seems that that this is addressing a particular problem in society, if not in the church. But it's written directly to to the church. This isn't written to those people who are outside the church and and self-indulgently building up uh, that wealth at the expense of others. But did James perhaps expect the church to pass on the message to them if it wasn't for them directly? Now I don't know about you, but I don't literally have a store of gold and silver that is rusting away in our cellar. Although I might have the odd moth-eaten sweater tucked away in a drawer somewhere. I hope that none of us would knowingly withhold wages from people who work for us. Thank you. <laughs> so what, what, what general lessons can we learn from it? Paul wrote to Timothy about the love of money being the root of all kinds of evil. 
And it seems to me here that it's not so much money as, as the problem, but what you do with it, your relationship with money. And there are three points I think we can draw out from this. That people were condemned for hoarding wealth. For wealth hoarded and gone to waste. Assets which were acquired for the sake of it. Assets that were acquired and not used. Gold and silver corroded. Clothes moth-eaten. It was wealth that could have been used could have been deployed but wasn't and went to waste they didn't need it and they didn't share it with those who could have used it wealth that is surplus to needs and not shared I suppose the question for us is what do we have that we've acquired that we don't need that could be used elsewhere because here the key thing is that it was acquired for the sake of it acquired but not used it wasn't a, so much an investment it wasn't something which was was used for their enjoyment and pleasure but it was acquired for the sake of it they didn't need it and they weren't using it and the challenge i think to us is to examine ourselves and our assets to see what could we share and pass on to someone who could use them the second point is that wealth was obtained by dishonest means at somebody else's expense or to their harm. Now again, as I say, there are very few cases you come across where people are, you know, where, where we, we won't actually pay people who've done an honest job for us. Uh, I, there was someone I did know who, who always made a policy of never paying the last Invoice that he was he was charged for a piece of work. He, he was a client, and he always had this this point of view that uh, it was generally uh, something which he could get away with. And so, therefore, you know, maybe the last ten thousand pounds of a job or something like that, he would just say, "Well, I'm not paying," and would delay it and delay it and delay it. And it was generally more expensive to take legal action to to. Uh, to recover it than than to uh, than than yeah to, to, to just let it go. So he got away with it, and you know used to make extra money that way. That's a terrible thing to do, I think. And and I hope that none of us would would go along with those kind of shady practices. But how can we not pay the wages that are due? Well, I was typing this up on my on my new, uh, or fairly new, uh, Kindle tablet that I bought, and uh, and as I was just typing it away, I just as you do, just sort of went and browsed the BBC News. Was it BBC News or the Guardian website? And there was a little bit about how Amazon are paying rock bottom wages in order to make their Kindle tablets uh, in in China. 
And I bought this Kindle tablet because it was cheaper than, a, uh, than an iPad. Um, I thought, well, you know, it, it's going cheap, so I'll buy it. And, and I didn't give a thought to why it was so cheap. Most of us are at some distance from the people who will be harmed by our decisions and our decision to save money. So we all know about fair trade goods. We should think about, about where a bargain comes from and how bargains are made. But also those car washes that are cheap, that use people who maybe are being exploited, or nail bars where people are exploited. Think about how we spend our money. And the third point I think that, that James is making here is that life, the life that he's talking about is a life that's lived with the objective and the aim of self-indulgence. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. It was a life that was lived with the objective and the aim of self-indulgence. And again, that's that's a mindset, not a monetary sum. And all of us can succumb to this way of living, however much we earn, not just those who own super yachts and fly around in helicopters. It's a mindset and not about money as such. So each of us can look at ourselves and ask the question, how does this apply to me? I may have a lot of money or I may have very little money. But what is my attitude to it? Scripture talks to us repeatedly, doesn't it, about about money and greed. In the same breath that it talks about other things that we automatically think of as being sinful, sexual misconduct and violence and, and idolatry. But again, sometimes our confirmation bias allows us to overlook those phrases that talk about reckless use of money and focus on the things that we feel more comfortable on. It's therefore something that we should reflect on and examine ourselves on. However much or little we have, our attitude to money and how tight a grip we have on it is the real question. Scripture doesn't lead us down the path of of being Puritans. It doesn't lead us down the path of being ascetics. Uh, You know, again... People have made that mistake in the past and gone to live up poles in the desert because they thought that that that's what Christ wanted us to do, to, to reject everything and all possessions. It doesn't lead us down the path of smashing up works of art because they are gaudy and and not what God wants. It doesn't lead us down the path that views any kind of pleasure as suspect and anything more than the most basic possessions or indulgence. But it does lead us to think about our attitude and what control money has on us.
James later on in the chapter goes on to talk about prayer and prayer is is one of those things that we we talk about a lot don't we 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 talk about about prayer but it's it's something as a practice and as a as a concept that i really struggle with sometimes i don't know whether you do as well about learning to pray and 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 the, the, the sort of attitude that we should have to prayer. What actually is prayer? I mean, we, we've, we've said a number of prayers this morning. We, we've prayed this morning. We've spoken to God. But when, when Paul, sorry, when James talks about, uh, is anyone in trouble? Let him pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. What is prayer? Is it about trying to change God's mind about something? That, 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 that's always the, 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 the struggle I have. Are we, by praying, trying to change God? Or, or does it work a bit like a petition, where if you get enough signatures, you know, God will change his mind about something and, and act? Well, I'm waiting, but I, I need another five or six prayers before I'll act. I mean, I, I don't think that's the way that prayer works. Scripture never really gives us an analysis, does it, of, of, of what prayer is and, and how it works. It gives us, um, it just tells us to do it. it. It never gives us instructions about exactly when or where or how often to pray. But it just gives us loads and loads of examples of people who prayed and people who were changed and changed their environment by the fact that they prayed. Jesus taught us how to pray with the Lord's Prayer, but that's an example rather than, I think, a fixed liturgy. We don't always pray the Lord's Prayer when we pray, but that gives us a good understanding of the sort of thing that we should should be uh, bringing in. It tells us the how rather than the what. I think the one thing we can be sure about prayer is that prayer is certainly, definitely, about aligning ourselves with God and listening to him. If we're troubled, James says, let them pray. Let them bring that to God. If you're troubled, if, if, if you've got problems in your life, bring that to God. Don't, don't struggle on your own and think that you can sort it out. Think that you are able in your own strength to bring about a change. Bring it to God and let God help you. Become aligned with God and let him change you. It says, 
he wants to be involved. He wants you to know that you're not on your own and that you don't need to be isolated from him because you're troubled. Coming to him in prayer is part of the answer to prayer. Coming alongside him or acknowledge him, acknowledging him coming alongside you is something that he uses to change us, to make us more like him. A bit like rubbing a needle against a magnet makes the needle magnetic. So coming alongside God in prayer makes us more like him. If we're happy, sing songs of praise. We've sung songs of praise today. I don't know whether we were happy when we were singing them. But prayer isn't just for when we're sad or when we need something. But it's about rejoicing, about, about bringing to God that happiness, bringing to God that emotion. And it's not just about singing songs of praise here, but singing songs of praise in the, in the shower or whilst you're working or uh, um, doing whatever. The other one that I like is about calling the elders of the church to pray and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, I, I, I don't know what that means, whether we should do that literally, whether we should literally as, as a church, in, if we're not well, invite the elders to come and, and anoint us with oil. Whether the oil is, is, has got some kind of, kind of sacramental, uh, symbolic significance. Or whether it's just representative of medical treatment, because olive oil was one of the staple medicines that were used in ancient times. So is it just a, similar to saying pray, but, but keep taking the tablets? Call on people to pray for you and with you when you feel far from God. When you feel trapped in doing things that you know are wrong. And that you don't feel able to pray yourself. Ask people to pray with you. How often do you pray with your friends? Now, I'm sure you meet up with people in the week. I'm sure you go out for meals with people, go out for walks with people. How often do you pray with your brothers and sisters, apart from here? One of the, one, one of the, the really pivotal and transformational points in my life. I can look back to a number of things that changed me as a person. And one of them was being invited as a, as a very young man to, uh, to join a prayer group and a reading group that Richard's mum and dad used to run. I mean, apart from the noise of the baby upstairs, it was a really lovely, um, <laughs> a really lovely time. And, and that was a time when I, I learned to pray with people rather than just praying on a Sunday morning. And it was a time when we, we talked about scripture and in, in a way that was not possible in other, in other, at other times in the in the, the 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 meeting that I grew up in 
that experience of praying with people was transformational for me. And I can see that 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 changed the direction of my life. Who are you going to pray with this week? Who are you going to pray for? Develop habits of prayer. It's something which I've tried and failed on many occasions to to develop habits of prayer. For some, it might be rising early and, and praying before the rest of the household is up. For others, it might be staying up late and praying after everyone goes to bed. For others, it's in quiet times during the day. For me, it's when I go for a walk or have a particularly difficult gardening job. Or when I used to cycle to work, that was again a a time when I could pray. I had nothing to concentrate on apart from not getting knocked off my bike. But it's an opportunity to, to focus on God. The Bible never tells us about cycling about praying when cycling because well for obvious reasons so we have to be creative in the lives that we live now and in the way that we live our lives now think about how you can pray in order to align yourself with God and to be magnetized by him Jesus warned against displays of prayer didn't he Uh, against fancy words and ostentatious gestures but his example is the one we follow when he prayed he said not my will but yours and I remember I remember when we used to pray with Richard's mum and dad with Chris and Hannah They were always very reluctant to use those words, not my will, but yours. Not because they didn't believe them, but because they viewed them as quite... Words not to be taken lightly. Because of where it led Jesus. It led him to the cross. It led him to his death and to his resurrection. They're words that we should use, but not use lightly. It's not a question of, oh, well, you know, I don't care. Your will, my will. Yeah, your will, not mine. We must be prepared to follow through with the implication of what we pray. Not my will, but yours.